Revelation 2.13. I know where you live. I know where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. He says, you did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, who legend says was roasted inside of a brass bowl. My faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Okay, so um, in each of these letters, this I know clause is so significant because for many of us, we feel like what's difficult in our lives, what's tent. where there's tension, where maybe there's suffering, or maybe where there's persecution, sort of lives in the basement of our lives. And because it lives in the basement of our lives where nobody sees it, nobody else is there lending a hand to help us navigate, carry it, work through it. Because nobody sees it, um, uh, there's not a team. We're not tending to it together. And it lives down there, and it festers, and it weighs heavily on our hearts. And so I love that Jesus starts these letters with, I know, I see it. I know I'm working on it. I know I'm there with you. I know I understand. Jesus says, I, I, I see that you live where Satan's throne is. Some take that very literally in reference to one of the Greco-Roman gods who was pictured uh, as a serpent. And in one of these temples, they had all sorts of non-poisonous snakes that slithered around. And this was the goddess of, of or the god of healing. And, and so what people would do is they would go and they would sit uh, on the steps of the temple or lay down on the steps of the temple and hope that one of these snakes would come by, believing that if the snake touched them, uh, they would be healing. So, so someone, when John says serpent or throne of Satan, they're inclined to see that that Greco-Roman pagan idol worship and possibly even that particular god. Uh, Some are inclined to see it as uh, really the throne of of the emperor and the imperial cult and worshiping uh, the Roman emperor and the sacrifices that were offered. Regardless, Jesus is saying, I see that where you live is hostile to your faith, that what I've asked you to do culture mocks and marginalizes that what i've asked you not to do uh, culture celebrates and condones i get it i see that you live where satan has great influence i see that you've been faithful even though some in your midst have been martyred and i see that it is a common everyday regular occurrence jesus says i see it i know let's continue verses 14 and 15 again spiritual blind spots. Jesus is not fixing culture. Jesus is not making all of their problems going away. Go away. Jesus is targeting their hearts. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Most of the church of Pergamum was doing a great job. Jesus is very affirming of them. Most of the church is doing a great job. The problem is they're allowing this heretical and immoral faction to exist and to thrive in their community. They're not doing anything about it like a person with cancer who refuses to go to the doctor they're not doing anything about something that is going to kill them what were these people doing well the 
sin of Balaam that, that Jesus references here takes us back to Numbers 22, 25, 30 uh, in there. And, and what happened is God's favor was upon his people. Because his favor was upon his people, everything they did was blessed and succeeded. Balak, king of Moab, sees this, is afraid, right? He, he wants his people to thrive, not the people of Israel. He's threatened by the people of Israel. So Balak finds this guy named Balaam and says, I will ask Balaam to put a curse on God's people, and in that way I might gain the upper hand and we can defeat them or we can push them back. And so Balak goes to Balaam multiple times. Will you curse the Israelites? I will pay you. Will you curse the Israelites? And of course, God comes to Balaam and says, Balaam, you're not going to do that. And so Balaam tries on multiple occasions to curse the Israelites, and what comes out instead is blessing. And once Balaam figures out that God is not going to allow him to do this, uh, Numbers, I think it's 3016, references a scheme that Balak, Balaam came up with to give to King Balak of Moab. And Balaam told the king of Moab, he said, do this. Send in your young ladies, and the young men of Israel will see your young ladies. They will want to marry your young ladies. And if that happens, that's against what their God has told them to do. It will turn their hearts. They will worship the gods of the Moabites. And in that way, the favor of the Lord will be lifted, and you will be able to push them back, and the people of Moab will thrive again. And it works. King Balaam, King Balak does it. Uh, They send the ladies out, the men go out, and they begin to worship the gods of the people of Moab. And sexual immorality and idolatry go hand in hand. Uh, Fortunately for the people of Israel, God intervenes, and his judgment is so harsh that the people respond with faith and say, we get it. We have gone off trail. We get it. We're undoing the good you have done for us. We get it. Uh, what we've done is not right, and God's people return to him, and his good plans, his good purposes materialize. And, and so this is how Jesus describes what this faction in Pergamum is doing. This isn't a gray area. This isn't a minor theological technicality that they're arguing over. This is a black and white matter, clearly wrong, clearly conflating what's going on with culture, with what Jesus has asked them to do. Uh, This is a a no-doubter. This is a black and white uh, matter. They are clearly in the wrong, uh, and it really sort of captures what James says in James 4.4, this idea of friendship with the world. Uh, James 4 says this. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And friendship with the world does not mean having friends that uh, are godless or don't follow the Lord, right? That's an essential part of our mission. Friendship with the world is valuing the things of the world over the things of the Lord. Friendship with the world is valuing the approval of men and women over the approval of God. That's what we see these doing as evidenced by their idolatry and their sexual immorality, which would have included going to these various temples, participating in these pagan rituals, including the temple prostitute. So it was clear as day, not what God intended, destructive for God's people, and the church is tolerating it, not speaking against it, not doing anything to put an end to it. A question that would be worth us asking today is, 
in what ways are we subtly compromising and making ourselves friends with the world? In what ways are we subtly compromising and beginning to value the approval of men and women over the approval of God? In what ways are we subtly compromising and beginning to desire, to prioritize, to pursue the things of the world over the things of the Lord? If you have young kids in your home, you may have seen this in action because the Amazon toy catalog arrived Thursday. You may have seen this in your own home, uh, just the weight of materialism, right? The Lord calls us to store up treasure in heaven. Uh, we live in a culture that expresses self-worship uh, among many ways, one of which is materialism, that possessions uh, are satisfying, that possessions are the mark of success, uh, that possessions uh, validate a human and their existence and their worth and their work ethic and their competence. Uh, that is the, the nature of the world that we live in. The commercials that we're going to see on TV over the next few months are going to remind us that if you're successful in any way, shape, or form, what you really need and what you really want is a Lexus with a red bow on it in your driveway. The commercials will be everywhere uh, reinforcing this idea of materialism as an expression uh, of self-worship. God calls us to store up treasures in heaven. Uh, I was challenged on this topic once where someone asked, what do you daydream about? Storing up treasure in heaven? A treasure on earth. Could be a vacation. Could be remodeling a bathroom. Could be an add-on to your home. Could be a new used vehicle. Could be a new new vehicle. Could be a nicer new vehicle. Could be a shop. Could be filling a shop. Could be what's in your gun safe or what's not yet in your gun safe. What do you daydream about? We see it in our kids when the Amazon catalog comes in the mail. Is it possible we haven't outgrown that ourselves? Uh, materialism. It's one of the ways we make ourselves friends with the world. Uh, scripture also is clear uh, about sexual immorality, which is prominent in this text. Ephesians 5.3 is a fantastic uh, reference point uh, for sexual immorality. Ephesians 5.3 reminds us that there should not even be a hint. Verse 3, but among you... There must not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So try scrolling through Netflix and looking for something that has not even a hint of sexual immorality. Find something. Please send it to me that it has no hint because we, we need things to watch. Try listening uh, to music. Just Google whatever the top t 20 is. I, I would suggest not watching the music video, but just look at the lyrics of, of uh, music. And, and so what happens then is, is we find ourselves uh, making friends with the world, calling what the world condones uh, permissible, good even, uh, and then we start to say really dumb things to, to justify those subtle uh, compromises. Again, if it's Netflix, we say dumb things like, uh, well, there's not that much uh, sexual content in it. Well, there's no uh, nudity. Well, we fast forward through the, well, I'm not listening to the words of the song. Um, so we ask, do our lives look more like Ephesians 5.3, where we're pursuing not even a hint, where we're running from uh, even uh, 
a hint of it, or are we finding ourselves regularly justifying, explaining, rationalizing? There's nothing else to watch. There's nothing else to listen to. This is the best of what's available. Do we look like the world? Do we look like Ephesians 5, 3? By the way, Plugged In Online is a great resource for um, finding out what's in a television show or movie before you watch. Um, what does Jesus want them to do? We have worldliness. They've made themselves friends with the world. Rather than submitting to Jesus, they've brought in everything that culture is doing and essentially saying, this is okay, this is permissible, this is not detrimental uh, to the team. Jesus says, nope, it, it is. Uh, verse 16 and 17. What does Jesus want them to do? What will they get if they do it? Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's that judgment again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. A personal blind spot that we should ask as we read through this text is, am I becoming a friend of the world? Am I subtly compromising and becoming a friend with the world and making myself an enemy with God, his mission, his purpose, his glory, his good name in my community? A question that we might ask together is, are we allowing, are we condoning, are we permitting, are we not speaking to things that are destructive to God's good work in our midst, that undermine his plan and his purposes for all of us, right? Are we, are we biting our tongue? Are we allowing things to happen in our midst that are destructive to God's purposes, We're described as a team. We're described as a body. That means that our lives are interconnected. Uh, think about sports in middle school and high school, and inevitably somebody on the team skipped class, had their GPA drop below whatever minimum threshold was required to play, got caught smoking pot, something always happened, and someone was not able to play that week. And so it was just a vivid reminder that one person's choices can affect things for everyone. One person's choices can affect things uh, for everyone. And so we're described as a team, and Jesus is giving us instructions for how to exist, how to work together as a team to accomplish his good will and not see it sabotaged or torpedoed by this small faction who's falling apart uh, on the job. And what I love here is, he says, it's not too late. Repent and deal with this, or I will, but it's not too late. And so maybe some this morning just need to hear that. Wherever you've been, it is not too late to repent and move forward with the Lord. Right? That's one of the key lies of the enemy. He buries us uh, with our past. And so we just wave the white flag of surrender and check out. And Jesus says, no. You have definitely gone off trail, and you are heading for a spiritual crash. It's not too late. It begs the question, how and when do we stick our nose in other people's business? Because we could do an open mic 
right now, and a lot of you could come up and share bad examples of how other people have stuck their nose in your business, right? Churches are good at that. Thinking of no one specifically, not Rack specifically, just broadly, churches are good at that. We have all of these uh, objective standards from Scripture, and we compound or we compile on top of that an enormous list of subjective standards from our own lives and then put these huge burdens uh, on everyone else. Uh, even growing up in a pastor's home, uh, if we went to a certain movie, my father would get a phone call. Did you know your son was at this movie? It, it didn't matter what it was. Lots of eyes, lots of ob- uh, expectations, and we, we crush each other with our expectations. The problem is we do actually have a responsibility to each other. As a team, we suffer when one suffers. When one goes off trail, the whole team goes off trail. If you watch a football game today, and if a wide receiver gets fed up with a play calling and says, I'm not getting the ball enough, and walks off the field, the whole team suffers. So how, how do we work as a team? When do we stick our nose in each other's business? How do we do that? Just not an exhaustive list, but just a few guidelines from scripture on when it's right like the church of pergamum to speak in to what's going on and confront and correct hebrews 3 uh, 12 through 13 says take care brothers lest there be any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living god but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin one of the times when we step in with a confrontation or correction was when we fear a person has stepped away from the Lord or we feel like their salvation is at stake. And this is not a commentary on can you lose and gain your salvation and how does that happen? Just simply that that's between a person and the Lord. But when we watch a person and we go, oh my goodness, this is trouble, that's a moment that we need to remember that we're a team, our lives are interconnected, and we have a responsibility and obligation for the glory of God and for the good of that person to, in a loving and thoughtful way, bring that to that person's attention. Another time is, another occasion would be if there's a pattern of behavior. Matthew 18 speaks to how you um, come alongside when there's a pattern of sin, and it really speaks less to the nature of the sin and more to the nature of the response of the person. Is the person responsive to correction? Is the person responsive to the word of God or defiant or continuing in their own way, uh, recklessly ignoring the wise counsel of loving, trusted friends? So when there's a pattern of behavior, that's a, another occasion uh, that a red flag should go off that, that person needs uh, our help. James 5, 19 through 20 encourages us to, to step in when we see someone who it, it appears like they're spiritually falling off uh, the wagon, so to speak. Uh, fourth, uh, from Hebrews 12 and 3.13 and 1 Corinthians 5 tells us to uh, step in, especially when it's a particularly egregious sin or something especially tarnishing to the name of God in our community. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this letter to this church, and he says, what's going on in your midst is unconscionable. It's worse than what's going on outside the church. Deal with this. Uh, And and so we see things that are especially tarnishing to the name, the mission, the purpose, the glory of God in our community. Those are special occasions to to step in and, and to gently and lovingly confront Incorrect. Interestingly enough, uh, Proverbs 19:11 and other places in Scripture provide 
uh, guidance that there are plenty of occasions where uh, the right thing to do is to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 says this. I lost it. It's gone. Proverbs 19 is gone. The point being, uh, to a degree, we should offer each other diplomatic immunity when it comes to petty and small offenses. Our posture towards each other should be to quickly forgive, to quickly love, to quickly be patient, to get over things fast, because we're on the same team. We're working together. We understand each other's difficulties. We're grateful for God's mercy in our life and desiring to be quick to show that same mercy to others for the purpose of love, for the purpose of correction, for the purpose of guiding, for the purpose of healing, for the purpose of restoring, that in some senses we should be regularly offering each other diplomatic immunity. So holding grudges cannot be our thing. Long-standing relationship fractures cannot be our thing. How do we, how do we uh, come alongside people, right? We, we know the wrong way, right? We know people who nitpick at everything and make themselves to be intolerable uh, people, and you separate very quickly, right? Well, we also know people who do the exact opposite and would never under any circumstances confront or bring up a sin, and, and we call those people enablers. We call those people, um, it's not helpful, right? What, what, is, what does the middle look like? Well, we're not nitpicking everything to death, becoming intolerable, and we're also not uh, just permitting everything and, and not being useful on the team, right? Uh, to use the, the, the sports analogy, it is not useful if a teammate is slacking at practice. It is not useful if a teammate is consistently not doing his or her part and someone on the team doesn't say something. That's detrimental to the team to be silent. Some parameters are motive, always to restore, always to build up. Our method, um, you're familiar with the passage that says, bear with one another's burdens, right? Our, our posture should be understanding, uh, not condescending. Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another. Uh, so we're to walk with people, not just come at them. Romans 15.7 says, accept one another, uh, warts and all. That, that as we are here by God's design as family, that we're to accept each other, warts and all. Why does it matter? Let me reread how this passage ends. Why does it matter? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the person who receives it. Uh, hidden manna, God's divine provision. A stone with a new name on it. The position Jesus gives to us when he redeems, when he rescues, when he saves us. Uh, start with the hidden manna. Uh, there was a jar of manna. Manna, of course, was the food that God provided to the Israelites in the wilderness. They had nothing. There was no Fred Meyer. He just made manna 
happen, right? He provided for their needs when there was absolutely no way possible. And Jesus himself calls him himself uh, the bread of life. And, and so uh, a number uh, of commentators would say that this idea of hidden manna really just uh, is describing the full bouquet of benefits of life in Jesus. I think Ephesians 3 is a great, or Ephesians 1 is a great place uh, where some of those things are lifted, listed. Let me just read a couple verses regarding this uh, provision in Christ for each of us that the Lord wants for us that worldliness undoes. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. I'll just read a couple verses. Praise be, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Everything that we need, we have been blessed with. Everything that we will need for tomorrow, we have been blessed with. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. So he came to us, he chose us, he pursued us in spite of the fact that we did not pursue him, right? We didn't go 90% and then he went 10. We didn't earn good behavior and then because we earned good behavior, uh, he chose us. He chose us while we were still sinners. It says to make us holy and blameless despite despite the fact that we have not lived holy and blameless lives. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, right? For adoption and sonship. He's called us sons. He's called us daughters. We don't deserve to sleep in the barn with the animals. He's made us sons. He's made us daughters, given us the second master suite in the house. Not because of anything we bring to the table. Not because of anything we offer him. Not because of a great pledge of a life well lived. If he'll just save us. This isn't like negotiating with our kids where if mom or dad just says yes, the kid's going to behave for at least 30 minutes. He chose us. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely. Don't miss not costly. It was free, it was costly, which he freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's mercy. We have redemption in his blood, your rap sheet, everything in your past that you wish didn't happen, every terrible choice that is known and unknown, every thought that is known and unknown, every shred of worldliness that is known and unknown, every shred of sexual immorality that is known and unknown, that season of life in high school, that season of life in college, that season of life afterwards, that cluster of years, of months, of weeks, of days, when you went off the rap, he takes our rap sheet and throws it in the bonfire. It's gone. It's not how he looks at you, right? Sometimes we think that he looks at us and he sees everything. It's almost like if you're getting online and doing a credit report or a background check and ah, traffic citation. Oh, speeding. Look at that. Three times in a year. Sometimes we think that, that he pulls up our name on the computer in heaven and just sees all of that stuff. No, holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Rap sheet. Paid for. 
burned up, set aside, new start. You're not known by those things. You're not known by those choices anymore. New provision in Christ. Second, he says, they're the one who perseveres, uh, not just provision, but position. So this white stone thing is kind of interesting. In the Old Testament, white stones yeah, could have been part of the breastplate that the priests wore and, and part of determining the will of God. In, in contemporary culture at this time, uh, a white stone was given to an athlete who was victorious. And so in part, it was a indicator that, that you won, that you did it, that you're a success, you're the conqueror, you're the champion. But it was also then used to get into whatever the award ceremony or after party was. So it was one part of recognition, but but another part, a, um, a mark of a position that you had achieved that was now yours, that you were now due or awarded with uh, as a result of competing and winning uh, in the games. And, and so um, this idea of stone and name actually comes out of Isaiah uh, 62. Let me read that real quick, just where you see this parallel of a new name marking a believer's position in Christ. Isaiah 62.2, the nations will see your vindication and all the kings, your glory. Talking to the people, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow and you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The idea is this new uh, position. Romans 8.17 talks about more about this new position as heirs, as adopted uh, children. And so as we kind of try to wrap up a bit. Um, Jesus starts the letter saying, I'm coming with the orange tube, right? I'm coming with a sword, a broadsword in my mouth. This is a position of power, of authority. This is a position uh, of judgment. He condemns the worldliness that has been allowed to go unchecked in this church. Says, church, it's your job for the glory of God, for the advancement of the cause of Christ. It's your job to address this. Otherwise, I'm coming soon. Why does he hate that worldliness so much? Why does he compel his people to address the cancer that's in their own spiritual body because he has a provision that they don't fully understand the provisions in christ far exceed their imagination and he's saying you're ruining it i have this incredible thing like the israelites going to the promised land would you just stay the course that i told you i've got a whole land waiting for you cities that you didn't build uh, vineyards that you didn't plant. Just stay the course. I have this for you. Jesus said, I've got this provision. So the one who overcomes will get to enjoy all that I've created in this provision. And your efforts to blend in with the world, to grab a little bit here and there, to get what seems attractive for the moment, are ruining an eternity of joy. This attractiveness of, of worldliness that maybe gives you a position of authority or a position of fitting in, a position of prominence in whatever circle you might run in. Jesus says, no, 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 correct that behavior. Correct, confront that faction. I have a better position for you. If it's a position in this life that you're looking for that is not going to satisfy, I have a position, an eternal position where we actually get to share, Romans says, in the glory of Christ. Jesus says, I have a better position for you. Stay the course. I've got something better. Uh, I was putting the kids to bed last night and 
uh, they were asking me just, they said, you know, Ged, who are your friends when you were our age? And we're talking about friends, and one of those friends I, I went to college with, and I, I told the kids that it was really cool. I got to go to college with one of my friends, and, and the kids were like, wow, that must have been so amazing. And, and it was a cool moment to look at them and say, yes, that was wonderful. But you know what's way better than that? I said, right now. Right now I get to be married to your mother. Right now I get to be your dad to each of these three kids. And they just, it, it was a cool moment where it was like, yes, that was really good, but this is so much better. They're not comparable. I would never under any circumstances go back to what was before. Uh, Jesus has this inc incredible thing. He's saying this is so much better than this worldliness that you're, you're pursuing. This is so much better, so don't tolerate it. It's a cancer that will destroy you all. Deal with it, or I will deal with it. If you're here this morning and the red flag, the bell, the snap that's going off in, in your mind that this, the Spirit is directing you towards is worldliness. Uh, the call is to be introspective, contemplative, but to take action, to repent of that. Church, part of this chapter is a call that we're a team, that we need to play like, act like, participate like a team. When, when one person takes their ball and goes home, the team suffers. When one of us goes off the rails, the team suffers. How can we be useful to each other? Invest relationally. Get to know people. Be a pursuer. Home group is a great place for that to happen. Participate. Uh, you have gifts. If your gifts are not being used by God's design, this church then is lacking in some way, shape, or form as it pertains to each of us having a part to play. Like We're here, we're unique, we're special, we have a part to play. Find a way to use your gifts. Uh, if you have a communication card, put it in either of the boxes back there or the one in the lobby. If you're wondering how you can use your gifts, if you're wondering how you can step into relationship, it is in relationship where we see and feel the weight of each other's sin, but it's also in relationship where that accountability has the opportunity to happen. If you're here and you're someone who gets confronted in the near future, uh, uh, Proverbs, I think it's 9-9, talks about it is uh, to a wise man, to a wise woman, it is wisdom to receive that rebuke, even if the person does it poorly. And they probably will. We're not good at this. We're really bad at it. Be someone who receives it well anyway. If the Lord has put someone on your heart that, that you need to come alongside with a a gentle correction. Pray about it. If you have sin in your heart, confess that sin. Let the Lord do the work in your life before you go and try to be a part of his work in somebody else's life. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect, but if you're going to be a part of God's good work in God's good people, don't drag your sin into it. Read through the one another passages. They're, a, they're just a guide for how to do this well. We are a team. When one suffers, we all suffer. Uh, as we go forward into the fall, uh, unity will be threatened maybe more than ever. Right? We have all sorts of events coming in the next three months. At some point, there's not going to be an outdoor service. Probably until we all die, we're going to be wearing masks. There's going to be an election. Some are going to be really excited. Some are not. doesn't matter who wins. 
Revelation calls us back to our hearts. It's not saying that stuff doesn't matter. Revelation calls us back to our hearts to cling to Jesus in the midst of the storm, find in him our anchor and our rock and our shield. In these letters, he doesn't just smooth out the way for his churches. He reforms, he transforms, he purifies his church and then sends them out into the world. Let's open our hands, our eyes, spiritual eyes, our minds. God wants to send us out. Let's let him do this work so that he can send us out to make him known. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, we we want to be the purest reflection of Jesus that we possibly can. Because it's through your people and your spirit that you are going to draw many out of darkness and into the light. That you're going to save people. You're going to provide. You're going to give them this this hidden manna. That you're going to give them this new position. Lord, and, and that's what we want for the glory of your name. We want people to come out of darkness and into the light. Lord, out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. So forgive us for the part that we have played in subtle compromises towards worldliness. Lord, of not being a team player, not being participating, not being engaged, not being relationally invested in your people. Lord, we, we have busy schedules, but would you uh, put it on our hearts, Lord, speak to us through your spirit about what it looks like for us to be a team player with the people that you've surrounded us with, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for making us holy. Thank you for making us blameless. Thank you for throwing away our rap sheet and calling us by a new name only known to us. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. May we be quick to extend it to others. In Jesus' name we pray.